0: Welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community.
1: Today I'm super excited to have on the Polygamer Podcast my dear friend Sabriel Mastin, the multimedia maven, indie gamer extraordinaire, queen of the Twitterverse, and pursuer of the Penny Arcade Expo Continental Trifecta. Hi Sabriel. Hello. How are you today?
0: I'm doing well, thank you.
1: Fine, wonderful, great. So good to finally have you on the show. You and I have been friends since we started following each other on Twitter last summer, and we have finally had the opportunity to meet two months ago when you attended PAX East, not for the first time. In fact, we kind of, sort of, almost met at PAX East 2014.
0: Yes, we did, yes. um, There was this guy hosting a panel about sex, sexism and uh, something about sex, Little did I know, a few months later, I was going to be talking to him online. I didn't actually associate it, that it was was you.
1: Yeah, it was so funny when that finally came up. We were chatting on Twitter, you were listening to the Polygamer podcast, and all of a sudden, one day out of nowhere, you tweeted, OMG, you're that guy. And I'm like, what guy? (laughs) You're like, I was in the audience of your panel at PAX, and I had taken a photo of the audience while I was on stage, it's included in my Storify of the event, and I pull up that Storify, and you were right there in the front row.
0: Yes, yes.
1: So I don't know if we met at Paxi 2014 or we met on Twitter six months later or we met six months after that at Paxi's 2015, but either way, here we are. So, as I said, you have a variety of roles and accomplishments in the gaming space, and I'm looking forward to chatting with you about all of them. Let's start with your role as a writer in the indie game scene. When I first met you, I think you were maybe, at the time, still associated with Indie Gamer Chick, or you had just recently departed from that position. But tell me a little bit about how that role started and what your association was with the website Indie Gamer Chick.
0: Absolutely. Actually, it was a... One night, I was at work, and I received a message from Kathy, the head of Indie Gamer Chick, or the Indie Gamer Chick herself. And she just said, you're opinionated. You should write for me. (laughs) And I was like, uh, thanks? Um, absolutely, maybe? I've never done this before. I'll give it a shot. It was a little weird at first. I had not been much of a writer most of my life. Uh... But I was enjoying it. I loved video games. I loved talking about them. And she is correct. I am opinionated. It kind of worked out pretty well.
1: And how did she become aware of your opinions? Was was she following you on Twitter?
0: Yeah, she had been following me for some time. I couldn't tell you the history there. Whatever. I don't remember. I will spout about gay rights or um, whatever's on my mind or how Fargo here, North Dakota, can be crazy or terrible drivers and apparently... that just got her notice.
1: That's awesome, because that's another thing we want to be talking about later in this episode is your you are, in fact, in Fargo, North Dakota, which is not just the scene of a famous film. It's actually a city that people live and work in, which is fascinating to me. Uh, we'll be talking more about that later. But Indie Gamer Chick, found at indiegamerchick.com. How long were you affiliated with that website?
0: I wrote for her for about a year, year and a half. During that time, I learned a lot. Uh, she didn't really edit much of my work. But uh, So she let me have free reigns of whatever I wanted to talk about, as long as I didn't get her into trouble.
1: So did you have a particular beat at Indie Gamer chick? You Did she assign you games, or was there a particular genre or developer, or did you basically just go at it willy-nilly, and whenever you had something to contribute, in it went?
0: Uh, for the most part, I would just go willy-nilly, choose whatever kind of game I wanted to talk about, as long as it was something from the indie scene. I dived into playing things like World of Goo, and Super Meat Boy, but I really didn't pay much attention to it. I had not been hugely aware of the indie scene. I had played games such as like World of Goo or Super Meat Boy before, but I had not had much exposure to it. And so she would maybe feed me a game or two that she had received a request to review. And I started checking those out. I started talking to more people on Twitter about the thing. And soon enough um, people were saying, Hey, you should come review my game. Or I would see people talking on Twitter about um, some game that they loved, I would check it out and play it and just throw my thoughts at it. Um, sometimes I would actually go onto the uh, what's called the Xbox Live Marketplace and see their huge scene there, uh, and check out a game that I thought maybe be interesting, might be terrible, just from the demo or whatever. Well, that's how I chose things to write about.
1: Was there any benefit to you to writing to this website? For example, did, did you get review copies or steam codes?
0: Uh, we would pay for our own games because she felt it was kind of like an ethical thing to be paying for our own work, other than giving a free gift from them.
1: What were some of the highlights for you of writing for Indie Gamer Check? This, this was your writing debut. Did you get to flex your editorial muscle, your writing creativity, in ways that you hadn't before?
0: Oh, Absolutely. As I mentioned before I hadn't been much of a writer most of my life, and this gave me a chance to practice doing that. Um, it was something I've always been a little bit interested in, but I never really had Sit, or had never really sat down to do something like that. How this benefited me, it was like I was starting to get exposed to this whole huge indie scene that I started falling in love with quickly. I started meeting people um, both online and offline. I actually discovered there's a huge or not huge, a small indie community here in Fargo growing because of it. I just actually um, started looking for it. I never would have looked for anything like that before in my life. I had my own little gaming people I would just play with or friends I would play with games here, but I was never that much into the scene and whatnot. Writing has also just helped me. People started noticing my writing. I've actually had people say, I really like your style. I honestly don't know what that style is. I just put words onto the page. People seem to like them. And it's all great.
1: Do you have a particular writing process that you use? For example, like you, you, you have to sit in a certain room or use a certain word processor or any sort of rituals or practices that you feel are best conducive to get the juices flowing?
0: You know, I am still trying to figure this out myself. Uh, some days, I'll have no problem. I can just sit on the couch here, cat in my lap, computer on my leg, as I awkwardly try to type, and I have no problem. Just spit out a huge chunk of text, whatever. Other days, I cannot focus at all. There's Twitter, there's video games, there's city skylines distracting me like crazy, and I will have to go to a coffee shop. And right over there. Um, but I don't really, ha- I haven't quite figured out the Right thing for me yet.
1: What about software and hardware? Do you, have, do you have any particular tools or suites that you prefer?
0: Oh, yeah. I, uh, I use everything in Google Docs. I actually had purchased a Chromebook just to write uh, about a year ago. And uh, that was working well for me. It was great. Um, I had this thing that was always connected to Google Docs whenever I needed it. And then a few months ago, I was at a friend's place and they had some wine sitting about and one of them bumped their wine glass and accidentally gave it to my Chromebook and that was the end of that computer.
1: Oh so, no. What would you do? What would you do?
0: <laughs> I um well I actually tried to fix it for a few weeks. The machine actually ran fine, but the keyboard was stickier than anything and there was no way I could easily replace it. So, oh, after about a, 3 weeks of this trying to get it to work, trying to figure out what am I going to do? I can write on my desktop. That's where I get the most distracted. So, I th- decided I'm going to get a MacBook. And this is the first time I've been on a Mac device in ages. So it's still quite an adventure for me to learn. But um, I'm enjoying it. I still use Google Docs heavily on there. Unless I cannot get connected, I'll use um, whatever it's called on that program, Pages? I don't know. But I love Google Docs.
1: Nice. The only downside to Google Docs, as you just pointed out, is that it is reliant on an internet connection, which can be unreliable.
0: Right, right. Uh, Here in Fargo, I don't know... I see people online talk about how everybody everybody has Wi-Fi. Uh, here in Fargo, I don't think anyone has gotten that memo yet. And you have to go to coffee shops for Wi-Fi. Otherwise, no one provides it for you. Oh,
1: I'm sure you have it in your home, right?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, outside the home.
1: Right, right. No, I mean, here in Boston, there's Wi-Fi everywhere. But we have enough uh, eggheads here that they know to lock down their Wi-Fi. and So there <laughs> aren't always unsecured signals that you can just hop onto. And, of course, coffee shops, some of them will... Put the wi-fi code on your receipt after you make a purchase to ensure that you are a customer and there's one wi-fi shop in davis square that actually has a daily weekly and monthly plan for you to purchase wi-fi it's not free so they basically are aware and expect themselves to be hosting full-time telecommuters and they're fine with that but they're not going to give it to you for free
0: oh wow that is so beyond the like, my scope of Anything.
1: (laughs) I think a lot of things here are. I I was highly amused when you came to PAX East and you're just wandering the streets looking up at all the tall buildings. (laughs) OMG.
0: Uh. The tallest buildings we have. Well, okay. We have a few four or five story things. We even have like a 19, 20 story building here and there. But going down Boston, streets of Boston, is so outside my schema of understanding the world. Uh, You took me on the metro and I had never done anything like that before.
1: Yes, uh, uh, these underground trains that move at high velocity. It's amazing.
0: Oh, so, well, what will they think of next?
1: I don't know. I mean, this is, you know, 20th century technology, cutting edge right there. So, anyway, so how long were you with Indie Gamer Chick?
0: I was with her for about a year, a year and a half. And uh, eventually she decided she wanted to go on her own again. She had um, had some things in her life where she had actually brought in a couple of writers. And after about a year or so, she decided she wanted to do it herself. I know she had some brand issues because the site is called Indie Gamer Chick. She is Indie Gamer Chick. Other people are writing for her, and she's getting all the credit for anything that other people wrote. And, you know, it was her own thing. She didn't want to have to watch over other things. And it was very amicable. I have an invite to write for there anytime I want to, or if I need to. And uh, about that time, I moved on to Indie Haven.
1: So tell me more about that. Indie Haven is where you are or have been for the, what, the past year or so now?
0: God, I think it's about another year, year and a half, yeah. Um, they were looking for writers, and I said, hey, I've written a few things. Here are some things I've written. They're like, hey, sure, come on board. It's a much different process than I was used to with uh, Indie Gamer Chick. Uh, they actually have editors or people who will edit your pieces. Um, they'll throw suggestions, like, this isn't working. This is. I'll expand on this and whatever, so it's gotten me more to or um given me more or, it's given me more experience under that kind of environment which you know a lot of newsrooms or even game sites actually are It's not a thing run by one person it's multiple people or editors
1: right because maintaining a news website or even a review website by yourself can be very arduous. If you want to get a real feel for a game, you have to spend, let's say, anywhere from 5 to 20 hours on the game, depending on the genre. And if you want to write a review of it, that can be another several hours. So at the most, if you're working a 40-hour week, you might crank out 2 to 3 reviews a week, and that's not enough to support a full-time gaming website. So you need to have a staff my hats off to indie gamer chick for feeling that she can maintain that herself but i'm glad to see that indie haven was willing to open their doors and bring you in do they have any sort of expectations in order to meet that quota of having multiple reviews or interviews or news pieces a week do they tell you you need to write this much for us or else you're out or are they just happy with whatever you can give them
0: you know in the past when i signed up it was uh under the understanding that i would write when i could i mean i have a 40-hour job whatever just like a lot of people and you know i'm a busy person too i was in roller derby for a while or traveling without the re- throughout the region seeing people meeting people i had a busy life and so they were okay with me just writing whatever they wanted uh, recently they've changed their policy to having at least one piece a week of anything be it reviews news pr stuff whatever still getting used to that change at times are changing, they were having troubles with editors or contributors not putting out enough, or people like me who, you know, just wrote whenever they felt like it or could.
1: And what do you think about this policy? I mean, from my understanding, Indie Gamer Chick and Indie Haven are giving you experience with the editorial process, exposure to a variety of readers, and perhaps, uh, does Indie Haven have the same policy regarding Steam codes?
0: Uh, they do not have that same policy. Um, I would buy my own game sometimes, sometimes developers would give them codes, or I'll just flat out. Ask developers hey can I have a code and do whatever works. As for their policy um, you know I put a lot of thought into it because I was kind of like well I can't do that at first but you know um, after a week or two of thinking about it like you know I can understand why they put this policy in place. Uh, it can be you know you want to have the freshest news you want to actually have content every day and it can be stressful for an editor too when you have that pressure to have content, get people come to your site every day, or maybe even every couple of hours.
1: Yeah, that can be very demanding. I mean, I experienced some of that as an adjunct faculty at a local college where this, you know, each of the students has to do only one piece of work, but then they pass them all in. And I suddenly have dozens of pieces that I need to read and edit and get send back for responses. Same thing with my magazine juice GS, where right now it's a lull while I'm waiting for my staff of writers to contribute content to the June issue. But once it all comes in, their deadline for submission is this Monday, May 11th, which is two days ago as this podcast airs. So right now, I am knee-deep in submissions, and I have to get through all of these. So it's a lot of work not only to build up that staff, but also there are almost certainly going to be fewer editors than writers, and to work through that uh, pile of submissions can be a lot. So uh, there's certainly a lot of onus on them, but What about you? They now have this new policy of a a quota for content submissions. And as I said, you've gotten exposure, you've gotten experience, and occasionally you've gotten Steam codes. Is that enough for you? Uh,
0: You know what? As in, like, is this enough for me? How so?
1: Well, there's been some talk about I'm on a email list for online journalists, and there was recently some discussion about this company that will send you a YouTube video that's 20 to 30 minutes long, and you need to watch it and write a 150-word summary of the highlights from that video, and you submit that, and for every summary you write, you get $10. Now, for some people, that might be like, great, wow, I'm going to get paid to write. That makes me a professional writer. That's awesome, but for People who have been doing this for a while, years, decades, they have portfolios. $10 per article is a pittance, and it's almost insulting to expect somebody to write for that little. You are not getting paid at all, not financially, not in terms of dollars. As I mentioned, there are some steam codes. You've been writing long enough that you have a portfolio. I think it's fair to say that you are a professional at this, although, like anybody, we all have opportunities to learn and grow and be better at what we do. Do you think that the experience and the exposure that you're getting is enough, or is Indie Haven sort of taking advantage of inexperienced writers, or is that something you'd prefer not to discuss in case it burns bridges with Indie Haven? I certainly don't. I certainly don't want to put anybody in a position to badmouth each other.
0: Oh no, 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 no. That's fine. I'm not going to badmouth them like that. No, no. Um, I'm actually very grateful for what Indie Haven has been able to give for me. It's it's not paid, no, but it is wonderful experience. I've I think I've learned a lot. And I would like to be in a position where I can actually make money for what I write soon. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen with them any time anytime soon at all. But um, I would like more, and here and there I will poke around and see what opportunities are available elsewhere. Or, But a biggest problem, or one of the larger problems I have is the confidence in my own work. I think I, I suffer from imposter syndrome at some varying degrees. And that can be really hard to fight sometimes.
1: So you mean that you don't think your work is as good as it actually is?
0: Right, right. Uh, it can be hard to convince yourself of that. I mean, some days it's wonderful. I'm like, yeah, I'm on top of the world. I am pretty awesome. And other days I'm like, oh, why is anyone even talking to me about this? Oh, why does Ken want me on a podcast? I
1: mean. <laughs> Well, that's interesting because the only people I invite onto my podcast are people who I think are too cool to say yes. (laughs) And so I'm constantly being pleasantly surprised. I'm like, oh my God, she said yes. She wants to be on my show. That's amazing. (laughs) So maybe I have a little bit of imposter syndrome as well.
0: Possibly. And you know what? Things like what you just said there are things I do tell myself to um, pump myself up. Be like, no, he asked me for a reason. I am awesome. And uh, I mean, there are more days where I'm thinking I'm awesome now and modest, of course. Uh, Than an imposter, but you know, it sneaks in once in a while.
1: So, now that you have this portfolio and you are a professional, whether or not your imposter syndrome allows you to admit it, what advice do you give to people who want to break into the industry as to a degree you have done? Because one of the most popular Paxis panels I see every year is how to break into the industry, how to become a games journalist, because there are so few actual paid positions at places like GamesRadar or Game Informer or Joystick or Escapist. They're highly coveted and it's highly competitive. Now, you may not have a full-time position at one of those websites, but you are nonetheless establishing a presence for yourself. Do you recommend people do what you do and just go on Twitter, be opinionated, and wait for somebody to (laughs) notice? Or is there something else that you recommend they do?
0: You know, if this is something you love, Um, First, don't quit your day job. The thing no one really seems to talk about is like tons of writers, tons of contributors, they all have day jobs. Don't ever give that up until you can actually have a source of income um, from the writing yourself. Uh, Second, you know what? Just write. One of the biggest things you can do is just get out there, write, practice. Um, Have a friend, edit your work. Don't just spit out your stuff. With all your typos uh, you may not realize you have some very poor habits like i do i split my infinitives all the time uh, so i have someone help me fix those be active on social media i am a huge proponent of just getting out there talking to people um twitter has been amazing for me i know it's kind of a weird thing for some people because they get harassed like crazy maybe i just haven't caught the ire of those people yet but um i also find it as an amazing tool i've met so many wonderful people Eventually, people st- will start noticing your work, or they'll even spread it around. Um, I go to PAX now, and I see people who are like, hey, it's Bree, or hey, it's Sabriel. Uh, and uh kind of got away like, from myself here and whatever I was talking about just now. <laughs>
1: No, that's a lot of great stuff. One of the things you mentioned was just right, and you do that not only for Indie Gamer Check previously and Indie Haven currently, but also on your own website, which is sabriel.me. You recently posted an interview with Brianna Wu of Giant Space Cat. When you have something that you want to say about indie gaming, how do you decide whether it goes on Indie Haven or sabriel.me? That's
0: actually one of the trickier things I've been trying to figure out. I want to be building a brand for myself, but I also want to be helping Indie Haven or helping um, contributing to Indie Haven when I can. Kind of sometimes it's like fifty-fifty thing. I'll put a review over there, do something on mine, uh, throw something their way, throw something mine. If it's short form, I'll just post about it on my site or on my Facebook page. Uh, longer form, maybe I'll send it their way. Uh, I don't really have much of a process on that.
1: I assume that Indie Haven has a sort of a tone or voice or style that they expect their writers to match, that they won't publish just anything you submit. So are there pieces where you say, this really wouldn't, wouldn't, it would not be a good fit for them, but it is interesting, so I'm going to put it on my site.
0: You know, I like that. Actually, my um, interview with Bree, I went to, it was kind of, it was short form. I don't know if it really would have been something that would have been great for them. It was uh, talking I mean, talking to developer Bree was great, and they might have liked that, but um, it wasn't the length. It wasn't a lengthy piece that I think they would have liked. I so I put it on my site. They don't really share a tone. They have, pretty much give us free reign to do whatever we want, as long as you know it's decent and appropriate.
1: Well, let's talk about your social media strategy. You said how great Twitter is, and I want to get back to that because. You joined Twitter in October 2008, 10 months after I did, and yet you have about eight times more tweets than I do. You're coming up on (laughs) 50,000, and you even have 700 followers more than I do. You're coming up on 2,000 followers. So what is your trick? What is your strategy for social media? Do you follow? Are are you selective in who you follow or with whom you interact or how often you tweet or what you tweet about?
0: I have no process whatsoever there. The secret to being uh, where I'm at now on Twitter is join there because your friend told you about this new thing called Twitter, and then uh, start playing World of Warcraft, and start following people who play World of Warcraft, and then start talking to those people who play World of Warcraft. And um, a few years later, wait for someone to tell you you're opinionated, and then start writing for them. (laughs) That's my strategy. No.
1: (laughs) So you were a WoW gamer?
0: I was. I was. Oh, I put a lot of years into there, a lot of reading into there, a lot of guild leadership into there. I loved it. Wow. Uh-huh.
1: I had no idea. I've never seen that side of you.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I was, uh, we call ourselves casual core raider. Someone who was not quite a hardcore raider, but way more advanced than a casual raider. And, uh, yeah. Uh, see, I learned a lot in those years with leadership and whatnot. It sounds crazy to say, but... Yeah, part of it is definitely developed who I am today.
1: When you are on Twitter, do you try to limit yourself to tweeting about video games or are you also tweeting that you're going for a run or what you had for lunch, here's a photo of this awesome bowl of rice that I had, (laughs) etc.? For example, I have multiple Twitter accounts and I don't know if that is for the best, but I try to keep the divisions pretty clear. Like my Twitter account, GameBits, is almost exclusively about video games, but then I have a separate Twitter account for movies, which I probably shouldn't anymore, but back in the day, that was my first WordPress blog, and so I w- that was my first Twitter account. And then I have a separate Twitter account for talking about uh, my Apple II enthusiasm, my cycling, my community theater, my vegetarianism, all the stuff, st- all the sort of personal stuff that makes me me, as opposed to video games, which is an industry and a hobby and a community that is almost independent of me. So, how do you decide? whether this is appropriate for the Twitter version of Sabriel, this is a part of my personality that I want to share with the gaming community, which I assume is mostly who and what you interact with on Twitter, or do you just try to focus exclusively on a particular aspect of yourself?
0: I will use this to talk about anything that's on my mind at the moment. Um, I tend to avoid talking about extreme political things, or, um, uh, yeah, I can't even say that. Uh, I don't post talk, post pictures of... No, I do post pictures of my cat. I don't tweet pictures of my food anymore. That's about my limit <laughs> to what I talk about on there.
1: Was there something that motivated you to stop that habit?
0: Oh, not at all. I hate the hate that people get for posting pictures of the food. Food is a human condition. We all love eating. And, well, most of us love eating. And people want to share their good food with other people. Don't hate on them. But um, no, I just like... I want to have... I would like to say I want to have quality quality tweets about things that will change people's lives, about things that are awesome, but then I will just complain about the silliest little thing. No, I don't complain much on there either. I will just talk about the silliest little thing on there, so it's not really adding much to the conversation. But So in short, no, I don't have a method to my madness, and I will talk about whatever's on my mind.
1: You said that you tried to avoid hot-button topics, but your Twitter profile, the last three words are feminist, skeptic, atheist.
0: I retracted that if I recall correctly, or I intended to. <laughs> um yeah, I I will talk about those things. Um I don't talk about religion too much on there. Um I am an atheist, but it um doesn't necess it defines who I am, maybe on some level, but it's not something I go out as I don't debate with um religious people, I don't debate with other atheists very often. Um I'm a huge proponent of feminism, but um anti turf. I have strong views on these things, but I just don't necessarily talk about them on Twitter. Unless maybe someone will bring it up, I will respond to them or whatnot. um,
1: And as you said, you haven't really attracted the attention of the wrong crowd yet, so these topics haven't presented you with the opportunity to engage in vociferous debate, really.
0: (laughs) Right, right. And plus, I think I'm a horrible debater.
1: Uh, Speaking about uh, Twitter strategy, this is tangential now to what you tweet about. Do you spend any time... Investing in hashtags to make sure that your tweets are seen by certain feeds or timelines or communities, or do you just kind of slot them in there at the last minute?
0: Oh, um, okay. I have a policy. World, well, not policy, but I try to. If I'm talking about a specific thing, like people I may not be interested in, like, um, Warcraft. If I happen to tweet about that, I will hashtag Wow. So those who have it muted, muted will be able to just ignore my tweet. Or if I'm talking about any specific topic that might be kind of annoying, or maybe even spoilery. I will hashtag it. However, besides that, I am I think hashtags can be great for whatever their purpose is, but I don't really do much beyond that.
1: A former guest of this show on Polygamer, Lorian Green, recommended that I start spending more time hashtagging my tweets. And so I found this website called hashtagify.me, where you can put in a hashtag, and it will tell you what other hashtags are relevant to the one you inputted and which ones may be more or less popular than the one you're considering. And so I try to use that to find related topics and hashtag my tweets. And as far as I have found, it's had almost no impact on my readership. I don't see higher engagement. I don't see a higher number of favorites and retweets. So I don't know if maybe I am just speaking to the wrong audience or my hashtag research methodology needs some tweaking, but uh, I, I don't really know if I have found value in hashtagging tweets.
0: There may be. There definitely is when there's a major news story going out. I will check out a hashtag or even do a search on a common word to see what people are tweeting about. Like um, the earthquake back in uh, Fukushima or even the events of Baltimore. I will find a common hashtag and check things out, but these are people I definitely just don't normally follow anyway. And that's probably what you're seeing there too. People seeing what people are talking about, but You know, there's not much to actually add or see. It's just kind of a news stream, really.
1: Yeah, I think if there is a trending event or topic like PAX East or different games 2015 in New York City last month, hashtagging that stuff is very relevant because there are people who are specifically looking for those tweets and they may not know who's at the event tweeting about it, but they want to follow the event. And so they'll do that. But for example, you know, like anytime I mention Kickstarter in a tweet, I usually hashtag that. Or I recently tweeted about the game Star Trek Timelines from Disruptor Beam, and so I hashtagged that PAX East, because that's where they did their demo, and Star Trek, because the game is about Star Trek. And again, that really didn't get much traction. In fact, <laughs> I just pulled it up, the only person who retweeted it was you. <laughs> And I know we're both raging Star Trek nerds, so that's not Absolutely. a huge surprise. Uh, But I apparently did not attract the larger audience of followers from the PAX East or Star Trek communities. So uh maybe I just need to restrict my hashtag use to the trending topics. Like, there have been memes out there like turn a video game into a movie or replace, or describe your private parts with a video game name. Oh, God. And if you, you, you saw those, right?
0: No, I apparently missed these, and I think I'm grateful for it.
1: Oh, they were amazing. But, uh, <laughs> all right, so Twitter is one social media universe, and you're also on the Facebooks and the Instagrams. But also very interesting is that you're not just a writer. You have also established a YouTube presence where you are doing unboxing videos and Let's Play videos, what got you involved in that? When did you get started with that? Because that's not something you're doing for an outlet, which is what got you started writing. This is what something you're doing for yourself. This is your own brand, your own channel. So tell us about that.
0: I've, I've been interested in the Let's Play concept for a while. I think it's fascinating. Uh, people actually want to watch other play, people play video games. Like, what is this? And I realized I started watching myself doing it. Like, oh, I just watched this person play through the entirety of... Uh, alien isolation. Like, oh, I guess this is something I like too. And, um, actually, some of it is a little bit of a confidence building. Some of it is a little bit of, um, skill or building out a skill set. Like, um, I have learned so much about video production and how much work can go into actually building a quality let's play or a quality, uh, unboxing. Um, it's been amazing. I've also, Felt more comfortable putting myself on a camera as time goes on. And speaking in front of others, it's actually been a confidence boost. Now I haven't had any huge viral thing, other than apparently everyone loves watching me talk with my Fargo accent on a video where I was mocking a Fargo accent. <laughs> However, um, doing this has just been a really interesting exercise in seeing what I can do. Um, I like challenges. I don't like to step away from challenges that are within reason in whatever I'm feeling at the moment. And building up video content has been really something neat, uh, rewarding, feeling. Even if I just get one view, it's like, oh, cool, someone actually watched my video. Confidence building. And like I said, building up my skill set for whatever the future may lie or may ask of me. (laughs)
1: Yeah, your video about Fargo accents is actually your second most popular video.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah, sure. Oh, jeez. Oh, tonight I'm going to go build or make a hot dish.
1: You mean a casserole?
0: Oh, geez, a casserole sounds disgusting.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now, you said that a lot of work goes into building a quality Let's Play. What, in your opinion, qualifies as a quality Let's Play?
0: Definitely good audio. That is one of the larger issues I have still, trying to get my audio to be balanced and not... I get excited easily. So I'll start screaming or going ah oh jeez oh god or whatever, and well the audio levels freak out and when they're put onto the video they are all sound like oh oh god oh, oh. and <laughs> so I am learning how to do better audio. I think good audio makes an amazing stream or listen to. Um, another thing that can be great is having someone who's just good talking at the camera or talking into their microphone, either being what's going on in the game or what's going on in their life when they're at a boring part of the game or whatnot. Um, You know, video quality is pretty easy for the most part when it comes to recording video uh, or at least gameplay
1: footage. You said that good audio is important. What sort of equipment do you use to ensure that you have good audio? Uh,
0: That's something I'm still trying to figure out. However... um, the microphone i use to record my audio now is the blue snowball people seem to be very fond of this i know there is much better equipment like sound soundheiser, sound, sound heiser sound there's much better equipment out there <laughs> but i think this does the job nicely um i've considered getting a mixer but i don't know exactly what that would do to me so i have a lot of research or do for me so i have a lot of research to do still um if it's even something that's worth investing in or not Otherwise, it's a rather basic setup. I have a standing desk with my microphone that hangs above me. That's my setup.
1: Do you have a studio or home office where you do all this? Oh, oh,
0: oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm actually kind of building out a studio right now. I've stopped my video content while I kind of figure out what exactly I want to do. But I'm also in the process of building this really cool blue or a, a green screen and just a screen behind me. I am not exactly sure what I'm going to use that for yet, but it's something that I'm like, oh, this could be handy in whatever I'm building. It's actually extremely easy. Otherwise, um, I have a basement computer desk here. Uh, I have a computer lab, basically. And uh, so access my studio, I can get some privacy whenever I need it. I have this little system of LEDs light LEDs, LED lights to help with my lighting. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's actually any good, but it seems to be working pretty well.
1: Once you have that studio set up, what kind of videos will allow you to produce that you haven't done before?
0: Something I've been toying with the idea of is building up like a, maybe a weekly indie news uh, video content, similar to something you'd see on maybe game trailers or curse or IGN. One that'll help me be more confident in front of the camera or just confident in speaking in front of other people, which has always been one of my failings in life. And, um, and I don't think there is much in the way of video content in that nature for indie gaming yet. One of the harder things about doing that for indie gaming, however, is trying to find, I mean, there's plenty of news in the scene. However, finding stuff that is actually interesting to people is one of the harder parts of that too. So I'm excited to try, to, try this out when I can and see what I can do with it.
1: One of the challenges I have found in covering the indie gaming scene is that the SEO value is very low. People go on YouTube and they search for Destiny and Grand Theft Auto and COD Blops, and they're not searching for, you know, Record Run or Super Win the Game, or there are so many other indie games that just aren't getting searches because they have a much smaller marketing budget, and so they're not in the forefront of people's minds. There are exceptions, of course, like Shovel Knight, but those are a few and far in between, and so it's hard to get people to watch this amazing content that you're producing because they just don't even know that the games exist. They're not searching for it. That's the top driver of traffic to my videos is organic search. It's not people who are subscribing to my channel, although there is certainly a loyal contingent of such individuals, but People need to be searching for these words, and if they're not searching, they won't find the content.
0: Oh, absolutely. My Let's Plays or whatnot of indie games are, have a much lower viewer count than anything else I produce. Heck, even my um, Fargo Accent video, yeah? Eh? Wait, that's Canadian. Anyway, or um, even on my Facebook page, uh, talk about whatever I just reviewed, eh, yeah, get a few views. Um, talk about Mario Kart 8, sure everyone wants to read what you have to say about Mario Kart 8. It's tricky, and it might be something that will forever be, eh, interesting, but not um, something the whole internet public wants to see.
1: Yeah, it's very challenging. I, I haven't cracked that nut yet. I'm hoping that if and when you beat me to it, you'll share the secret <laughs>
0: access. You got it. You got it.
1: So you are producing videos. You've been on audio podcasts, not only this episode of Polygamer, but also the December end of year 2014 roundup on my IndieCider podcast, where we talked about our favorite indie games of the calendar year. And of course, as we talked about, you have your writing portfolio, both previously for Indie Gamer Chick currently for Indie Haven, and also for your own website for your own website Sabriel.me. So you have all these different outlets and all these different media that you're working with. Do you have a favorite? Not necessarily just an outlet, but like, do you prefer writing or do you prefer conducting interviews on podcasts or do you prefer shooting videos? Is there a favorite medium that you have?
0: A few months ago, I would have said writing, but I'm actually finding myself really enjoying the video production side of it. I have yet to put down or figure out exactly why, but um, maybe it's just because I see people actually, I can see the viewer count higher on video content versus writing, but, um, or it's just because it's something new. Maybe that's why it's so interesting to me right now. But, um, ah, huh, video or writing? I think video at the moment is edging edging writing out over, over the other.
1: Yeah. Video has a much higher ROI because my site, gamebits.net, your site, sabriel.me, except for those loyal followers, to be honest, they're probably not destinations. On the internet, people don't really tend to go to these sites to look for new content. They may subscribe via RSS or email, but they're otherwise not really going there. Whereas YouTube, people can go to YouTube without having ever heard of you and they just stumble across your content. It's a great place to get seen and to be discovered. And so I appreciate that ROI where I can write an article that nobody will read, but I can put up a YouTube video that would be seen by 3 million people.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't know, maybe. That's just the way society is going. I mean, I've. I mean, people like... I mean, we have the decline of the newspaper industry. Uh, it's hard as heck to get a job at a newspaper or press site. They don't pay very well. Um, but video content seems to be on the rise. You can watch video practically everywhere now. I mean, I suppose you could read everything anywhere too, but video is usually quicker. Um, it gets to the point faster. Um, people just like to watch things. It's You don't have to actually sit there and focus on what you're reading. I mean, maybe there's a reason why video is becoming so big. Maybe that's one of those reasons.
1: Although it does surprise me that people are willing to watch video anywhere because if you want to watch a video on the Metro, for example, you need to probably pull out of your pocket this little smartphone. And if you want to get good audio, plug in these really uncomfortable earbuds. And that is such a disconnect from the direction that Movie theaters are going in where the IMAX 3D screen with 7.1 surround sound, that's the prime experience. That's the optimal environment in which to be consuming this multimedia. And even in your home theater, like I have a nice 50 inch HD TV, which is a big jump from the CRT I had just a few years ago. And I got my 5.1 surround sound. And I don't think I'm all that much of a snob. Like I don't really care if it's Blu ray or not, I'll enjoy it anyway. But I will not watch a movie on my iPod Touch because I have so many better alternatives available to me. And so I, I'm like, I take the public transit to work every day. I see people watching TV shows and movies, and it passes the time. And you know, maybe you don't need to have a Blu-ray edition of the latest episode of Three's Company to find out if <laughs> Jack is going to be able to pay his rent to the Ropers or whatever. You know, some experiences demand higher f- fidelity than others. So whatever. But still, I just, I would much rather be reading a book on the subway.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I I don't have that experience, not having been on a subway until last three months ago. But <laughs> you're, you're right. But Heck, I will find myself in my own house, pulling up a video on my laptop. that don't even be 10 minutes long. And I'll start watching a few minutes and do it. Like, why am I watching this on such a small screen? I have a large TV right downstairs. And sometimes I'll be like eh, whatever, I'm comfy on this stool. Or no, you're right. Go load up the Chromecast.
1: Right. Same thing here. I mean, I will use this Mac program called Mac Tubes, and I will download a seven-minute YouTube video, whether it's the latest episode of Loading Ready Runs Checkpoint or Anita Sarkeesian's Feminist Frequency. And I'll download the MP4, copy it to a thumb drive, plug the thumb drive into my TV, and watch it there. I mean, My laptop and I are already on the couch right in front of the TV. All I need to do is copy the file over there. Let's get off the topic of multimedia production. We've been on the phone for about 50 minutes so far, and there are a lot of other topics I want to hit upon, such as we have mentioned, you are in Fargo, North Dakota, just a few minutes from the Minnesota state border. You are in one of the seven states I've never been to before because North Dakota is not on the way to anywhere, and up until a year or two ago, I was kind of surprised to hear that people are actually from there. But <laughs> from hearing you talk, it sounds like there is actually quite the gaming scene in Fargo. You are always running, rushing off to conferences in Minneapolis or to Mario Kart invitational tournaments right there in Fargo. It sounds like you are in some pretty darn good company. You
0: know, I give Fargo a lot of crap be online or on or um, even here on the podcast already. But it's actually a pretty neat city. Um, it's growing leaps and bounds, probably thanks to the oil industry out west. But um, a lot of tech, and I wouldn't say a lot of tech companies, but um, there's a small tech contingent starting to build up here. We're starting to get more and more tech people start to notice the area. And I'm not exactly sure why, because I had not heard of the colleges pushing this at all, but um, even today I'm missing out on um, a little mobile meetup that I would usually go to every other Saturday, or um, once a month we have a game makers meetup, be it board games, video games, any other kind of games, either developers or enthusiasts or whatever. Yeah, I have a Huge friend group that just loves playing video games. Um, like, tonight, we have the Mario Kart Invitational. I'm not exactly sure the setup is going to be yet, but it's going to be fun, and people are going to hear me road rage like crazy. Um, you know, Fargo is actually pretty cool, and it's a lot of easy access to the bigger cities, like in Minneapolis or Chicago, which can connect me anywhere.
1: You mentioned the game maker scene. So there are actually people in Fargo making indie games?
0: Oh, yes. Um I wish I could think of the game studio off the top of my head, but um, they've gotten some press here. I know some of the developers actually went to GDC this year. Uh, well, they went there, I went to PAX, and we came back and shared notes. There is one game being developed called On My Own. It's a little mobile game and PC game where you are a little camper and you are trying to get back home. You have to Scavenge for supplies or whatever, and it's actually pretty neat. And they even had a Kickstarter that was successful. Um, a lot of people are starting to give them feedback because they're still in early access. Uh, another game is called the Better's Letters. It's a French learning game. I've been helping them out with um, how to talk to the press or whatever like that, and they've all been thankful for it. Um uh, it's it's crazy to see this little scene that I didn't realize existed a year year and a half ago, and uh. Uh, it's kind of something to be happy and proud about. Like, yeah, you know, My little Fargo is growing up.
1: It sounds like you have some great experts from whom to learn various programming techniques. And I understand that you've been teaching yourself HTML and CSS. Is that correct?
0: Oh, yes. Uh, Something I've been wanting to do for ages is teach myself how to code.
1: Um,
0: Short version, like 10 years ago, and I went to University of North Dakota. And they didn't have much of a CS program at the time. They assumed you knew how to code before you even went into 101 class. Uh, We took 101 Java. And I thought I was a failure because it was just not clicking. So for 10 years, I did other things, thinking, nope, apparently coding was not for me because I did so horrible then. And... Uh, you know, a few years ago, I'm like, you know what? I've been wanting to <laughs> coding has still always been speaking to me. Something is there. It's always kept me a little interested. So I'm like, all right, what can I do? So I picked up an HTML5 book from the start and started learning from there and, um, learned quite a few things, but I didn't think it was, um, something that was marketable or something I could use this as a job. So a few weeks ago, um, a program that recently started up called or at least start up in the area, it's existed for a while elsewhere, is Girl Develop It. They will teach women and men, actually, uh, despite the name, how to code various um, languages. And they've had a beginner HTML CSS, which I skipped because I showed them my work that I had done before. They're like, oh yeah, you, you are beyond the basics. So a few weeks ago, I took an intermediate class learning about um, bootstrap and or Twitter bootstrap and, uh, uh not micro, micro data and various other things. So it's like, wow, I'm finding so much. This is amazing and I, I'm loving it.
1: I'll ask you the same question I asked last week to Sarah Como, which is what benefit are you finding from a formal education on these subjects as opposed to just doing a Google search or picking up a book and teaching yourself?
0: One of the benefits for me was to see um if I could hone my skills in, or if I'm doing something right, even like, you can read these books, you can see why they did something and um but you may not understand you may see how they did something but you may not understand why and having someone there who knows the material at i mean right in front of you, you can ask them uh you can actually show you things that um a book can't do I mean he can do it right in front of you, show you the results where a book you have to sit here scan um figure out what's going on, why in the world they did this. Um, I found that very beneficial. But um the book allows me to do it on my own time as well, or a website allows me to do it on my own time. Um there's pros and cons to each. I'm I would very much encourage people to at least take a class on it, if you can, if it's available in your area. But um the book learning works great too, but you just have to work really hard at it.
1: Yeah, I don't think all of us are self-taught learners to begin with. I think the most valuable thing I ever learned was how to learn. And I probably needed school to help me get through that and start that and establish that foundation. But once I did, you know, I can teach myself to a degree, but I always find it helps to have a goal. For example, if you just tell me to learn PHP and go through a book, well, I'll do that, but I won't enjoy it and it won't stick with me. But if I, before I even crack open that book, say, I'm gonna write the best D and D character generator mm-hmm. ever. I'm gonna write a text adventure. I'm gonna write a BBS door game, and when and this book is going to be the method by which I do that. Then I have something in mind. I have a goal, and that's really gonna motivate me. And I understand you had a goal, in for which you want to learn HTML and CSS. You just built a website.
0: I did. If anyone wants to go see it, you can see. Um, go to Fargo. Actually, you should just Google search this because no one's gonna know how to spell Morehead. FargoMoorheadJuniorDerby.com. dot uh, com. This is a little something I spit out—it's kind of my uh, very much a beginner's thing, but I'm pretty proud of it. It looks kind of professionalish.
1: And you found it worthwhile to craft a website from scratch using hand-coded HTML when there are so many content management systems out there nowadays, like Squarespace and WordPress.
0: Yeah, I find that a very much, uh, a much more rewarding experience. I mean, all of those have their place and are great for people who don't have any experience. If I can build something like this on my own, I just, I I felt pretty proud of it. Maybe, maybe that's a me thing, but I like going to that website every now and then and just hitting the carousel of pictures and just seeing, oh, wow, I did that. Or, or, oh, well, I did that with a little help of Twitter bootstrap, but still I did it.
1: And uh, you built this website partly due to the connections you made this past fall when you engaged in roller derby yourself. I did. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I want, I, want, I want to talk to you about that because one of my favorite episodes of Less Than or Equal was number 21 featuring Serenity Caldwell, who talked all about roller derby. And I want to get your take on it. What motivated <clears throat> you to try roller derby?
0: So for years, I was seeing advertisements at the of the Fargo Moorhead Derby Girls, but I never uh, and I wanted to go see things, but I just never quite got there. And then one of my friends like, you know what? We're going to go. So I was like, okay, we're going to go. So I got to the arena, sat in my spot and uh, started watching. Like, Oh my God, this is amazing. This is so cool. These women around here on skates doing the jumps and the hits and the racing around the loop. I'm like, wow, I need to do this. I'm like, And then I'm like, why 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 did I just say that? I've never been interested in sports before. Why did I just say I need to do this? So then I started going to a few more games thinking, okay, maybe it was just the awe and amazement of seeing my first bout. And I go to another one. Oh, this is so cool. Oh, that voice is still there. Okay, one more game. If it's still there, maybe in a year I will try it. So I go to the game. Oh my god, this is amazing. This is so cool. I love seeing these women just in action, beating the crap out of each other. Okay, I need to do this. So I went home and bought a pair of skates online. <laughs> like, what am I doing? Who have I become? And um a few months, I started relearning how to skate because I hadn't skated since I was probably in junior high, which has been 15, 20-ish years. Been a while, anyway. And... I started getting comfortable on skates and like, all right, fresh meat is starting. Fresh meat is the time period where they will train you how to skate, even if you don't know how, how to take a hit, how to fall, and basically how to play roller derby. I was um, took part in a three-month training program, was feeling pretty much like a badass. It was two nights a week of uh, two hours of training, sometimes even three nights a week if I would join with a men's team and i actually got to play in two bouts uh, which was holy crap nerve-wracking uh the first one was just a fun bout there was basically no rules it was um that is a explanation for another long time or if we had another hour i would go into that but um that was a fun bout it was crazy it was heck of a hell of a lot of fun and then i got to actually play my first sanctioned bout and i was nervous as heck cuz these points actually mattered for the um the league and so the day comes, I help set up a track, uh, we do our warm-up laps, whistle starts, and uh, I sat on the bench the entire hour and a half.
1: <clears throat> oh.
0: <laughs> no, I was thankful for the experience, because uh, the team we played was beating the crap out of our girls, and I would have gotten my butt handed to me, so I was grateful uh, that I did not get to play. Um, we actually won that game, but oh, God. <laughs> Um I I'm a little glad I didn't get to play that bout.
1: So it kind of sounds like your experience with roller derby it was kind of like mine being on a curling team where it was nothing you ever thought that you would do and then you tried it and you had a lot of fun but after say a season or a half a season you're like I've gotten this out of my system. I'm glad I tried it. I really don't need to continue with it. Is that true?
0: Uh yeah, after a few months like I still love the sport. I um try to watch it whenever I can. However, um I started realizing it wasn't quite for me. It, it's a huge time sink, something that I just wasn't used to because with all my other things I want to do, like we talked about before, like learning how to code, uh, video production, writing reviews for video games. Um, I mean, some people can still do that in their daily, uh, in their work-life routine thing, whatever, but it just wasn't working out for me. And um, I realized I didn't quite have that competitive oomph that one needs to have in a sport, Um, so I still love skating, I love watching roller derby, and, you know, I still do kind of miss it when I'm watching it, because I love just hitting someone really great, but um, (laughs) overall, it just wasn't quite for me.
1: But you're glad you tried it?
0: Absolutely. I would not take back that experience for anything.
1: Awesome. Now, one thing that you do dedicate a lot of time to is travel. You recently met me at PAX East, as I mentioned, and just about a month or two before that, you attended the inaugural PAX South.
0: I did, I did. Um, my whole PAX adventures, even last year, was kind of a last-minute thing. I was packing up for another trip to go to see someone in Virginia, and as I was packing, I saw people on Twitter saying, hey, PAX tickets, they're on sale, they're on sale. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get in line just to see what happens. I have to finish packing, but oh, whatever. So all of a sudden, hey, would you like to buy a three-day pass? And I'm like, oh, wow, Um, yeah, why not? I have like six months to figure out if I'm gonna go. I can always just sell the tickets later or whatever. Two weeks before the event comes and I get the ticket, I'm like, I had to re- resign myself to not going. I'm like, eh, that's a lot of money. I don't need to spend. I don't know where I would even stay. And um, but then like the next day, I'm like, or even after that, I'm like, oh, Boston. I can go to Boston. I've never been to Boston. I love traveling. I could go out there. I can travel alone. But where am I going to stay? So I hit up forums, and apparently there's huge websites to dedicated to helping people, find people to stay, or places to stay in there. So I made arrangements with a gal, flew out to Boston. It was an amazing experience. I wouldn't take it back. Oh, I already said that. It was an amazing experience, and it was so awesome. And from there on, I'm like, I need to do this again. So PAX, I found out PAX out was going to happen. ordered tickets. Uh, basically, from... from um. That first PAX experience, I realized I wanted to go to as many as possible, or to as many gaming events as possible, within reason of my budget. Everything comes out of my own pocket, so it can be hard to go to all of them.
1: Do you ever feel any conflict about going to PAX? Because there are people who protest or object to PAX based on various grounds, including statements that the founders have made, and also just about the event itself being Not particularly welcoming to certain demographics or just as a gaming convention being so popular that it's hard to really enjoy yourself when you have to spend most of your time waiting in line. So what is it about PAX that has you going to PAX East twice, PAX South, and had tickets not sold out almost immediately this past week, it sounded like you wanted to go to PAX Prime as well.
0: Yeah, the Penny Arcade guys, they say a lot of things sometimes. And I had, in the past, I had had reservations about going I didn't know what the event actually entailed, you know, like, I had never been to a gaming convention before, PAX, and so, um I said, well, people seem to be having a good time there, uh, there's like, tons of things to do, and people to see, I mean, maybe it's different, and it's like, I, I started differentiating PAX from Penny Arcade, I mean, yes, they technically are the exact same, you know, run by the same people, but. Um, Pax is a different beast. There are some issues with it itself, but you know, I think overall it's a good experience, as provided you can handle the crowds or whatnot. They've been doing a lot to work on their diversity. They I mean they have or, or you know, like being welcoming to everybody. I mean they have their diversity panel or excuse me, room. Um they've had tons of panels on diversity, welcoming panels from all walks of life, and I think It's, you know, it's an amazing experience and something I'm really glad I started partaking in.
1: Yeah. I too understand the objections to PAX and they're completely founded and I appreciate that. But like you, I try to distinguish between the personality and the product. For example, PAX East and PAX South and PAX Prime and PAX Australia come from the same people who founded Child's Play. And that organization has raised millions of dollars for kids in hospitals. I would never boycott Child's Play because of who founded it, because you're not hurting the creators of Penny Arcade, you're hurting kids in hospitals. And that's not cool. So I admit, I donate to that organization every Christmas, and I feel good about it. And I try to remind myself that, yeah, people can be giant dicks and make mistakes and say stupid things, and sometimes they won't even admit that's a mistake. Sometimes they'll double down on it and entrench themselves further and be even bigger dicks, and that does not help matters whatsoever. But, you know, if you want to boycott an indie game developer because they're showing their game at PAX East, you're making the indie game developer's job harder because there aren't a lot of venues in which to get noticed as an indie game developer, as you and I have discussed, not a, you know they don't have giant marketing teams backing them. And so if they go to a con to show off their game, sometimes it's because there's no other con in town. It may not be the flawless convention we want. I wish that events like GamerX, founded or co-founded by Matt Kahn, who was on the very first episode of this podcast ever, I wish GamerX could enjoy the sort of success and proliferation that PAX has had, where they need to have four of these events every year all around the world. I wish those kinds of events enjoyed the popularity and success that PAX did, because those events are creating the kind of safe spaces that this community needs. But that's not happening. So I tried to support GamerX as well, but if PAX is the event that's in Boston, and I'm in Boston, and there are a lot of indie developers in Boston who I want to support, I'm gonna do it there too.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I would love to go to events such as uh, Gamer X, or there was one in Minneapolis I couldn't go to recently called GlitchCon. But you know, I only have so much money to. Some of the event like PAX has proven itself yet like worth going to. Like I'm sure. I really want to go to Gamer Gamer X one of these days, but um, I'm not sure if it's quite worth the um, cost to me yet because it's so far away from me.
1: And one reason to go to events like PAX is because they've attracted a critical mass. It's the same reason everybody's on Facebook. Nobody likes Facebook, but everybody's (laughs) on it. And so if you want to hang out with peeps that you know from Twitter or from Boston, then PAX East is the place to do it because there are 70,000 gamers there and the ones that you know are among those 70,000.
0: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: One of my favorite moments at PAX East was not spent on the show floor at all. It was going out with a friend of mine who was in town from Canada because she loves video games and PAX East is the nearest, biggest convention to her home in Toronto. And so I had that opportunity to catch up with her and we were not there to reconnect as gamers. We were there to reconnect as old friends and just having that opportunity, to having an event here in Boston that would draw her here was great, and I don't know that a smaller con would do that.
0: Oh, absolutely. Same here. Um, Going to the con is great. Meeting all these people, seeing all these games, meeting all the connections and networking that goes on is awesome and great for the future. However, it's also really, really, really nice to see these friends that I've been talking to for the last year on online and going to Boston and all meeting up for lunch or dinner and just talking as a group and in person instead of tweeting at each other. It's so cool.
1: (laughs) Right. I totally agree with the statements you made earlier about Twitter being a great tool to network and just to establish personal connections, but you, you really need to take it offline for it to feel authentic, in my opinion.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: And I mean no disparaging remarks to all the many friends I've made online who to date are still exclusively online. What I'm saying is that I want to meet all those people offline and I look forward to the opportunity to do so. So speaking of which, we're just about running out of time. You most recently were at PAX East 2015. Any chance I'm going to see you back on the East Coast in the next year, whether for PAX East 2016, April 22nd to the 24th, or even for the upcoming Boston Festival of Indie Games, Boston Fig, on September 12th?
0: I am hoping to go out to Boston Fig. Uh, Our mutual friend Steve Lubitz... As uh, has an open invite, it's like, hey, you should just come out to Boston Fig. It's a smaller event. You can stay here. Uh, It'll be cool. And I'm like, oh, that does sound pretty neat. And I would get to see all my Bostonian friends again. Um, One difficulty to that, it is the week after PAX Prime. And I really want to go to that, too. I would love to complete the trifecta of American
1: PAXes. But you didn't get PAX Prime tickets, did you?
0: No, I did not. I'm hoping I can get media badge since I got a badge for PAX East and PAX South.
1: Oh, great. So, so no reason why they should deny you after three accept- after two acceptances. Yeah,
0: I'm hoping so. I guess it's who knows the thought process, but I'm hoping.
1: Awesome. Well, I look forward to seeing you at one of those events. In the meantime, I will, of course, be seeing you online. Where can our listeners find you on the internet?
0: The easiest to find me is at sabriel.me. That's S-A-B-R-I-E-L dot me. That will link you to my Twitter, my Facebook, my YouTube, um, whatever else, what, whatever other social I have on there. If you are good at spelling, at Save Reality on Twitter.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sabriel. I really enjoy having had the opportunity to chat with you and get to know all about your prolificness in a variety of media and at events and a little bit about the gaming scene in Fargo. I know we could have gone much more in-depth on any one of these topics, but I appreciate this broad overview of the many things you do because you do so many awesome things and it's just all those things add up to make you such an awesome person. I appreciate chatting with you. Well,
0: thank you and thank you for having me on. This has been Polygamer, a Game Bits production. Find more episodes, read our blog or send feedback at polygamer.net.
1: How do you decide whether it goes on Indie Haven or sabriel.me?
0: Uh, that, that is, um, how is my process?